occult crimes, paranormal investigations, urban legends, and strange happenings. Welcome to Myths, Magic, and Murder. <laughs> hey, welcome to Myths, Magic, and Murder. This is episode 85. I'm Abby. I'm Kate, and we'll be your ghostesses on Halloween. It's Halloween. Woohoo! Oh my god, and this isn't even pre recorded. It's actually Halloween. You are here live with us We're in a live. cemetery right now. We're not live. But it's pretty exciting because usually we pre record. Um, but we're not very prepared. Yeah, this Halloween we were like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, it's Halloween. So here we are. <laughs> I think it's good because now we can all share the festivities together. It's not fake. My feelings towards Halloween right now are 100% real. I'm wearing a shirt with little ghosts on it. We have a pumpkin candle currently wax lit. Wax melt. Yep. That's what she meant. We've got Roger the Rat sat here with wax melt on his forehead. And I'm wearing an ank. So I guess you could say we are the spookiest ones in the world. Um, she's wearing a necklace that is an Egyptian ankh symbol. In I am case an you... ankh. <laughs> in case you don't know what the hell she means. I'm wearing a bat necklace. We're so spooky right now. Heck yak we are. What are you talking about this week? Okay, so today we're doing a serial killer episode for Halloween, aren't we? Ooh. I'm talking about Ted Bundy. Yikes. I am talking about Richard Ramirez. It's going to be a bit of a scary one. It's going to be a serious, factual episode. So if you don't want to hear about actual horrible things happening, please listen to our last episode where we talked about stupid ghost stories. Yeah. Um, also, a pre-warning for mine. There are... There's sexual assault, a mention of children. I don't go into specific details about anything because if you want to know it, you can look it up. Exactly the same for me. Cool. There, to be fair, that with mine, there isn't that much um, specific details. There are for some victims that he recalled himself, but in terms of what the police found out, there isn't that much actually shared. So yeah. I'm just going to do more of a timeline um, and the people that suffered at the hands of that horrible man. I'm sure we'll find out. Got yep. any news? But I do have some lighthearted news this week before we talk about horrible things. So something happened from unexplainedmysteries.com. A woman was hiking, she was driving through Washington, and then she had a little explore on the woods, and she found some footprints that were 21 and a half inches long. How did I know this was going to be about Bigfoot? Because I love Bigfoot. <laughs> they are not shoe prints, they're footprints. How about you find me some news that isn't about Bigfoot? Oh, alien news? And she said there's no other prints around them, so she believes it cannot be from a regular human. Could it be Bigfoot? Or another <laughs> unidentified creature? Or just someone playing a prank? All right, hear me out. Bigfoot. Bigfoot. All right, get this, it's Bigfoot. <laughs> or, alternatively, Bigfoot. I love the name Bigfoot. Someone just looked at that foot and was like, that's big. That a big foot, and then it caught on. Yeah. I guess it's Bigfoot. I don't know. Well, I went for this news because if you search um, spooky news right now, oh yeah, it's, it's just... just Halloween decorations, and I wasn't going to talk about somebody else's Halloween decorations. Right? Guess what's on in Liverpool in 2021? Yeah, and it's all stuff for kids. Yeah. I almost entered a costume contest yesterday, but I knew a child would win, so I didn't enter. I hate that. Okay, <laughs> so last Halloween... No. The Halloween before last... I was working in a pub, right? This will be quick, I promise. And Please don't hate on kids. Lots of people who listen to this have children. I despise... No. But we had a costume thing for Halloween. Now, just to point out, I wasn't told that there was any sort of limit on what you should wear behind the bar. 
um, as a bar person on Halloween. So I turned up looking like a zombie with half of her face missing and my coworker wore an orange shirt and said he was a pumpkin. <laughs> so let me just set the scene for you there. And at about seven, we had a costume contest, right? There were people of all ages. There were some adults, some teens, some really young kids, blah, blah, blah. I had to pick a boy and a girl. I did not pick to make it a gendered specific event, but I had to pick one for each category that won, right? Thank you for this story. Yeah. They forced me to pick a child. I had no choice. I was on the mic because they were like, Kate, you seem like you're pretty good at talking with the mic. And I was like, listen to my podcast, Myth Magic Murder. And they were like, you have to pick a kid. So this is how I know that every costume contest is rigged. That's why I didn't enter. It's stupid. I think that it's lovely that kids dress up for Halloween. I think it's adorable. But if I'm putting hours of work into my zombie costume, I want some goddamn recognition. I'm not being funny. Half my face was gone. <laughs> Do you want an award, Kate? Are you still bitter over this? I'm really bi- I can't believe he wore an orange shirt and said he was a pumpkin. That is low effort. Stood next to me. <laughs> I'm sure people really appreciated how scary you were. Some of my face nearly fell in someone's drink. That's so gross. I would have made them a new one. I would have said no. I would have said I want <laughs> your face in my drink. It Excuse adds to the me? horror of the day. I want that disgusting decoration. I'm like, can you put more of your face into my <laughs> pint, please? Yeah, that was my little little story. Thank you. Let us know if you've ever won a costume contest and what you're going as for Halloween. And we will get into some serious send us photos of you guys looking scary for halloween and we'll do a costume contest and i will not let a child win that's not true we could let a child win if a child's costume was good i promise kate doesn't hate kids in our chat coffee in a chat on patreon we were just talking about old people she hates everyone apparently <laughs> yeah i don't like you regardless of your age group <laughs> okay i'll move on to mine now rather than staying bitter about past events <clears throat> My sources this week are Wikipedia, Biography.com, AllThat'sInteresting.com, Murderpedia, and CrimeMuseum.org. So I have so I have no doubt that at least some of you will have heard of Richard Ramirez, aka The Night Stalker and The Valley Intruder. I just want to say that this is the American Night Stalker, because apparently the UK has their own. Let's stop giving serial killers cool names. Right. Also, apparently there was another Night Stalker in, in America before Richard. So it's it's a bit confusing when you give them the same cool name. Don't do it. Just call them stupid idiot man number one, two, three, four. People I will stop committing crimes. Don't do that. Um, I can cover the UK one at some point if anyone's interested. But this is just about Ricardo or Richard Leva Munoz Ramirez. What a name. Yeah. He was born on the 29th of February 1960 in El Paso, Texas, to, it's spelt like Julian, but it's probably Julian, right? And Mercedes Ramirez. El Paso is a city in the far western part of Texas, with a current population of around 680,000 people. Thank you for the geography. You're welcome. I'm not going to go into any more detail because it's not where any of the crimes really happen. He was the youngest of five kids and had to endure the abusive nature of his father, who was prone to fits of anger, causing physical abuse to not only the kids, but also Mercedes. It was useless to fight back against him because he was a policeman. So they were just helpless. Not only was he abused, he also sustained multiple head injuries at an early age and was knocked unconscious by a swing at the age of five, causing him to experience epileptic fits. 
Now, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but it seems like any kid that has sustained a lot of head trauma then goes on to be a serial killer. Well, that's why I like talking. I mentioned it. I scripted it in mind, so I remember to say it. The reason that I like talking about serial killers' pasts is not because I think that they're like super interesting like in terms of them as a person, but because I think when you think about the psychological links between these people, there's yeah. always like some kind of theme. Yeah, it's you like they're I mean? normally abused. They've normally sustained head trauma. Yeah, and like... They got into drugs young. But what is the difference between that person and like a person who has the same kind of upbringing and doesn't do that? Doesn't go on to kill people? It's absolutely it's, baffling. It's so fascinating and like strange. Oh yeah, I'm not excusing his later crimes because he was abused as a child. Oh yeah, God no. But it is interesting that this is like a common, yeah. a common occurrence. When Richard was slightly older, he escaped the abuse by sleeping in a local cemetery. This wasn't the only family problem going on. When Richard was around 12, his cousin Miguel Ramirez, otherwise known as Mike, which is how I'll refer to him, who he seemed to be pretty close to, had served in the Vietnam War and committed brutal war crimes that led to him becoming a serial killer. Mike had taken photos of his crimes and showed the graphic Polaroids to Richard. I remember this piece of information. I don't remember too much about this guy, but I always remember this. He was fascinated by the images. Yeah. The two spent more time together, and Mike showed him more photos. They did drugs together, they drank alcohol together, and Mike started teaching Richard military skills, such as how to kill someone stealthily. Always a great thing to teach somebody else. Right? A young adolescent? Why not teach them that? What could go wrong? (laughs) The pair were hanging out on May 4th, 1973, when Mike got into an altercation with his wife, Jessie. There was a big argument, and to end it, he shot her in the face and killed her. After Richard saw this, because he was in the room with them, he then became slightly withdrawn from his family and friends. But not because he was upset about seeing a homicide, it was the opposite. He was so fascinated by what he'd seen, he started sort of delving into that kind of stuff right later that same year richard moved in with his older sister ruth and her husband roberto who was a quote-unquote peeping tom roberto took richard with him to spy on women at night lovely now bear in mind richard's only 14 at this point um so he starts taking lsd he's already been into so much like there's i think there's no coming back from this really Um, And at this point as well, he gets extremely interested in Satanism and the occult. Also, joining the pair on the nightly adventures was Mike. He was only incarcerated for four years and was found not guilty by reason of insanity due to his PTSD from Vietnam. So he continued telling his war stories to Richard and continued to pique his interest. When Richard hit puberty, he went out and got a job at a local Holiday Inn where he used the master pass key to go into the guests' rooms and rob them. Also, while he worked there, he molested a few unnamed children. It was when a woman's husband walked in on Richard attempting to rape her that he was fired from the hotel. The husband beat the shit out of Richard. Good. But the couple dropped the charges against him because they were from out of town and it was obviously really traumatic for them to go back and have to testify against him. Then when Richard was 22, he moved to California and continued to abuse drugs, burgle people, 
and get more heavily into his fetishes of forced bondage, rape, and murder. Apparently, Richard moved around both North and South California, like, even before his night stalker crimes began. He was just constantly on the move. So, unfortunately for you guys, I know you were excited for it. There is no more demographic information to share with you. (laughs) I don't have any. I'm so sorry. That's unacceptable. He moves around a lot, and I wasn't going to add in, like, a population for every single city. Well, you're just crap. I will next time. So, I'll just get straight into the murders. Richard committed his first murder on April 10th, 1984. His victim was nine-year-old Mei Leung. She was walking with her eight-year-old brother in the city and realised she'd dropped a $1 bill. So she went to look for it, but instead found Richard. He said he knew where her dollar bill had gone and she should follow him to retrieve it, except he took her into the basement of the apartment building he was living in and murdered her. This crime wasn't tied to Richard's later crimes until 2009, when they matched the DNA at the scene to him. Wow. They're so recent. In 2016, authorities revealed that they believe there was a second person present at the crime scene. But they haven't ID'd them publicly, because he was a ju- well, they were a juvenile at the time. And they don't have enough evidence to charge them. Right. It wasn't until June 28th, 1984, so just a few months later, that his night stalker crimes began, which involved breaking into people's houses and killing them on their own property. His first victim was Jenny Vincal. She was asleep in her bed when she was repeatedly stabbed and nearly decapitated. Richard had removed a mesh screen in order to get access to the property through an open window and preyed on her while she was vulnerable. His DNA was on the mesh screen, which is how police managed to link him to the murder later on. Richard then appears to have backed off for a few months, probably to keep a low profile. But on March 17th, 1985, he attacked Maria Hernandez, who was 22. He shot her in the face just after she'd pulled her vehicle into her garage. Richard then went inside her home and killed her 34-year-old roommate, Dale Yoshi Okazaki. Maria had actually survived the attack, though. Wow. She was just playing dead until she was sure he'd left. Nice. Because the bullet, as she'd, like, lifted her hand up to protect her face, she had her key in her hand, and the bullet ricocheted off the key. Oh, my gosh. How? That is insane luck. Right? Wow. Wow. So when Richard left, he didn't just go home. He found Sai Lian Yu and pulled her out of her car, shooting her twice and leaving her to die upon arrival at the local hospital. These three attempted murders in close succession made the media go wild and dubbed Richard the walking killer and the valley intruder. The news coverage didn't stop Richard though, and on March 27th at 2am, he entered the home of Vincent Charles Zazara, who was 64. So Richard already knew the layout of this house because he'd burgled it just one year earlier. And the reason that he kept burgling places is because he had such a bad like drug addiction that he was just using everything he could to try and like pay for it. On this occasion, though, as well as stealing property, he killed Vincent while he was sleeping. His wife, Maxine, put up a fight and managed to escape the rope she'd been tied in while Richard was looking for valuables. She went under the bed and grabbed the shotgun and threatened threatened Richard, but the gun was unfortunately not loaded, 
which Richard realised, and then he brutally murdered her, taking a trophy from her mutilated body, as well as the valuables that he found around the house. This was the first scene with evidence that police could actually use at the time because DNA testing wasn't introduced until later. But Richard left the imprint of his Avia sneakers in the flower beds outside. The castings at this scene, sorry, the casings at this scene matched the casings at the previous murders, so the police then determined that there was a serial killer roaming California. Two months later, on May 14th, 1985, Richard entered Bill Doy's home and killed him. He was 66 and was caring for his disabled 56-year-old wife, Lillian. She survived the attack, but was sexually assaulted by Richard during his break-in. Richard also stole valuables from this home, which, as I say, proved to be a regular occurrence. After two weeks, Richard went to Mabel Bell, who was 83, and Florence Yang, sorry, Florence Lang, who was 81, their house together. The two were sisters, and Bell was caring for, for Lang. Although he didn't kill either of the women outright, he tortured and raped them both, and left satanic symbols drawn in lipstick throughout their home. Two days later, they were found, but unfortunately Mabel Bell died in hospital from extensive injuries. The very next day, on the 30th of May, his next victim was Carol Kyle, who was 42. She was home with her 11-year-old son, both of whom were bound while Richard asked where their valuables were. Although neither of the two were killed, Carol was raped. July 2nd, he stabbed Mary Louise Cannon to her death in her home while she was sleeping. Three days after that, he attacked 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron in her bedroom. It's interesting that he doesn't really have like a... Like a weapon of choice. Yeah, like um, something that he enjoys to do, I guess, besides, you know, the obvious, like the murder and stuff. There isn't a specific weapon or a specific style of anything. It's just whatever he kind of fancies at the time. It's like he's not thinking about anything. He's just doing it out of pure, like, sp- like spontaneity. <laughs> spontaneity. Yeah. It seems like he... His weapon of choice was a knife. Um, because he has stabbed quite a lot of people. But I don't think he turned up with a knife. I think he used whatever he found. Right. So he has obviously battered Whitney with a tire iron. But then he attempted to find a knife to kill her with. But he couldn't find one. So he tried to strangle her with a phone cord. However, Richard noticed sparks coming from the cord. And Whitney began to breathe again. So he just left because he thought that Jesus Christ had saved her by intervening. Interesting. Somehow Whitney survived the ordeal, and it took 478 stitches on her scalp. My God. Then on the 7th of July, Richard went into 60-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson's home, where he found her asleep on the couch. He murdered her and left the imprint of the same avia shoe on her body, which police linked to the other crimes. Then he was on his way home from the murder and he decided to go into Sophie Dickman's house, who was 63, and held her at gunpoint, stealing her jewellery and attempting to rape her. During the time he spent inside the house with her, he asked if he'd got every item of value already and she said yes, at which point he told her to swear on Satan, which she did and then he left. This obviously tided him over for a couple of weeks until the 20th of June, where his next victim was Layla Neiding, or Needing, 
who was 66, as well as her husband, Maxon, who was 68. Richard had brought a machete to use in this killing, and eventually shot the couple to death. After which, he stole items and left to go to Chainarong and some kid Covenant's house. He murdered Chainarong and raped some kid, then bound their eight-year-old son and dragged sorry, dragged some kid around the house in order to get the location of every item of value. Then he left, again making them swear to Satan they weren't hiding money from him. The next victims were Chris and Virginia Peterson. Richard shot them both on the 6th of August. Virginia was shot in the face while sleeping, and Chris was shot in the neck. Then Richard attempted to escape the house for fear of being caught, but Chris, the one who was shot in the neck, managed to fight back against him, wow. ignoring his fatal injury, and even managed to avoid being shot two more times by Richard. Eventually, though, Richard managed to escape, but incredibly, both of them managed to survive their injuries. That's crazy. That's so good. Right? How do you survive being shot in the face? Or the neck? Pure will, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Luck. It's amazing. Only two days after, Richard killed Elias Abawath, a 31-year-old father in his own home. Then he raped his wife, Sakina, again asking where the valuables were, making her swear on Satan. The couple's three-year-old child walked in during this, and he was bound and just ignored by Richard. When he left, the child was untied by the mother and told to go and get help from a neighbour. So at this point, Richard left L.A., and went over to San Francisco because of the huge amounts of media coverage his crimes were getting. Yeah. When he reached San Francisco, he got straight back into old habits, and on the 18th of August, he attacked Peter and Barbara Pan in their home. He killed Peter with a shot to the temple, but after he'd abused Barbara, shot her, and left her for dead, he left the property. However, she made a recovery after the assault. At the crime scene, Richard had left another satanic symbol in lipstick and wrote Jack the Knife on the bedroom walls. As well as this, he'd left another shoe print from his Avia shoes. So detectives realised that they were from an uncommon type of shoe because they'd been, like, looking into it. And there were only six pairs in an 11 and a half in the United States. Oh my god. Five were shipped to Arizona and only one was shipped to LA. No way. So it matched the Nightcrawler. How did he even get that shoe? That's such right? a specific thing. That is a really impressive way of tracking somebody down. So like, this linked the San Fran killing to the LA ones. Mm -hmm. And the mayor of San Francisco leaked the information breakthrough on the news. Oh no. This pissed detectives off. Yeah, I can imagine. Because they knew the killer would be watching the news and might destroy the evidence. Which Richard did he threw his shoes off the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that very night. Afterwards, he headed back to LA to continue his killing spree. It's so frustrating how the media, like, they, they publish so much. And I know that it always bothers investigators because it can really compromise a case. Yeah. And, like, it's ridiculous how they prioritise getting some good good news out there. Getting some juicy goss. solving the, the crime. Yep. It's... It's so frustrating because it could have stopped. Yeah, they could have just like tracked him down, surely, and then it would have prevented probably way more deaths, I'm sure you're going to tell me about. Unfortunately, yeah. 
On August 24th, Richard was about to enter James Romero Jr.'s house when he'd just returned from a family holiday. James's 13-year-old son was awake at the time and heard Richard's footsteps outside the house. Immediately, he went to wake his parents up and Richard fled the scene. James ran outside and noticed the colour, make and style of the car, as well as getting a partial licence plate number. Nice. He thought it was just a thief that he chased off, though. So when he told the police that information, they didn't link it at first to the Nightcrawler. That same night, Richard went to Bill Kahn's and Inez Erickson's house and broke in through the back door. He shot Bill three times in the head, then moved on to Inez. He raped and bound her, as well as going through all of the Satan conversation all over again. As well as saying he was the Night Stalker. Then before he left her, he said, tell them the Night Stalker was here. She managed to untie herself when he left and went to a neighbour's house who phoned for help. And luckily, surgeons managed to save Bill's life, even though he was shot three times in the head. That is amazing. They only managed to remove two out of three bullets. Wow. So now, he's just got it in there? as As far as I know, he just has a bullet in his head. Wow. Police took a detailed description from Inez and found a footprint from the home. As well as this, they found the car that Richard was using and managed to get a fingerprint from the rearview mirror even though it was obvious that he'd tried hard to rub off any prints. So they matched this fingerprint to Richard's fingerprint on their system already because he had a prolific history with the Mm -hmm. police. Which then meant that they had access to his mugshot, so they finally knew what he looked like, and they released that to the media who released it to the public. Nice. But Richard didn't know about that. Get wrecked. So he went to try and visit his brother, except his brother wasn't there. So then he came back to LA. And when he came back at the bus terminal, he walked past police officers on August 31st. The officers were at the bus terminal in hopes of catching him in case he tried to escape. But obviously, like, the arrivals and departures are, like, (laughs) separate bits. So he just walked past them. Oh, my God. They didn't even notice? No. He walked from here into a convenience store in East LA and noticed a group of fearful elderly Hispanic women calling him the killer in Mm -hmm. Spanish. He turned around and noticed his own face on the front page of one of the newspapers, causing him to flee in panic. He then tried to carjack a Ford, but was pulled out by an angry resident. Then Richard attempted to take car keys from Angelina de la Torre, but the woman's husband, Manuel, saw this and smacked Richard over the head with a fence post. Then over 10 of the residents started chasing him down. Nice. They caught up to him and beat the crap out of him. Police eventually arrived at 8am and took Richard, who was badly bruised, into custody. So from here, obviously, they've got evidence, they charged him and they took him to court. But the trial was no less eventful. On his first appearance on July 22nd, 1988, he raised his hand which showed a pentagram drawn on, and he yelled, Hail Satan. Then on, do. If right. Then on the 3rd of August, jail employees overheard a plot to kill the prosecutor. Ramirez was trying to get a gun smuggled into the courtroom so that he could shoot him dead. So they had to install... That's not going to stop the trial. I, I know, it's not going to help you, dude. Like, But I guess... At that point, maybe he just knew that he was screwed anyway, so... Maybe he was just like... Try and get some revenge. Yeah, like, I'm mad at you. I'm just going to shoot you dead. Yeah. 
So they had to install metal detectors and do intensive like body searches on everyone every day they came in for a trial. On August 14th, one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, didn't turn up to court. That was because she'd been shot to death in her apartment. People were like, oh my god, it was Richard. Like, somehow he's got to someone and they've they've killed her. Mm-hmm. But it was determined that she was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who committed suicide with the same weapon shortly afterwards. However, the juror that replaced her was too scared to go back home, because everyone still thought that it was Richard. Yeah. Despite all of the interruptions to the trial, on September 20th, 1989, Richard was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to death in the gas chamber. And after he was sentenced, he said, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Interesting. Yeah. While he was imprisoned as well, I've not written this down, but while he was imprisoned, he got married to a woman who knew him like after this. And... It was kind of like a big point of contention. Everyone was like, why on earth are you getting with him? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the way that people were saying that like Ted Bundy, for example, and Richard Ramirez were like attractive. Yeah, some people are questionable. Yeah, I think it's just taking like the bad boy thing too far. Yeah, there's a bad boy and then there's Richard Ramirez. Then there's a serial killer. That's not hot. No, No, not at all. That is scary. Um... And then he wasn't killed in the gas chamber. He died of complications to a lymphoma on June 7th, 2013. I always think it's interesting how when you get somebody like this, it seemed like he was killing, you know, for fun, for a thrill, whatever. And then he wasn't really caring so much about the consequences. You know, he was like, tell everyone that the Night Stalker was here kind of thing. But from getting trying to get rid of the prints and stuff and fleeing around it's like they put on such a brave like cocky little face but they're actually like shit scared the whole time i don't think they're scared i think they just think they're so smart i think they're like well yeah like i'll get rid of my prints and stuff because i don't want to get caught but like you're never gonna catch me anyway because i'm so smart like all of you police are so dumb like you're never gonna find me yeah and like i'm not gonna make it easy for you to find me i guess but obviously he just didn't realize that like there were only six pairs of that shoe in that size i mean that's just an amazing coincidence i could not believe that only one was sent to la right well why was everyone doing in arizona that they all wanted that shoe right you're the five maybe it was like a club like a, yeah. an 11 and a half shoe size squad. The sixth person in the group was really good that they couldn't get the shoes because fucking Richard Ramirez had bought the last pair. And shot him over the Golden Gate Bridge. What a wild story. Yeah. Yeah. You got any psychology thoughts before we move on? I just think... I, I saw a thing when I was researching it and they were like, I don't think he was a born psychopath. I think he was a made psychopath. So because of all of the external influences that he experienced in early childhood like mike showing him horrible photographs it's definitely got to have some kind of impact his father's abuse him sustaining head injuries you know that that him witnessing a murder it does seem like a bit of a cocktail for it just at least making you desensitized if anything it feels like 
anyone that went through that would then go on to lead an exceptionally troubled life. Yeah. Um, again, he's obviously still guilty of everything that he did. It doesn't negate that. But, yeah, I understand what they mean when they say he was like a made psychopath yeah. or a made serial killer. Like, yeah. So that was interesting. Apart from that, I think he was just narcissistic and psychopathic, really. Yeah, well, fair enough. Thank yeah. you for telling me that. I didn't I didn't know the whole story. Me neither. And interestingly enough, um, in American Horror Story, with... Which season was it? The one... 1984? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah, in that season, Richard Ramirez is in it, and he talks about, like, Satan and everything, and I didn't realise how much the actual real Richard Ramirez was into all of that. Yeah. And they copied the way that he was caught. Yeah. And I had no idea... Like, I knew kind of roughly that he was caught. Um, I knew that he went to, like, a shop or something, and then he was caught. But they did a really good job of it. So if you haven't seen that, I would recommend watching that because it's quite, like, it makes you feel like, yes. Some kind of justice They've got him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that people always are split on opinion and what we should do with, with people who commit those kind of crimes. Yeah. But there's always some kind of satisfaction of at least seeing them get caught. Yeah. You know, and like, especially if it's just by some random people, because it's like, they must have been so frustrated the whole time. I'm scared. Yeah, like living in that area and for everyone to group together and get him, like, yeah. regardless of whether you think he should have been sentenced to death or whatever, that there's some satisfaction to that, you know? Yeah. Whether he should have been sentenced to death or not, we're not getting involved, but like, I yeah. mean, he should have been found guilty for his crimes because he did them. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, let's let's move on from that and talk about somebody else. But first, if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can do that at MidsMagicPod and get updates on when we post. Um, if you want to head over to our Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash MidsMagicMurder. If you're on Patreon, you can pay as little or as much as you want a month, and you can see us talking to you in person because we have video content on there. As well as that, we sometimes do like little extra things. We did a pumpkin picking vlog. We're gonna do a pumpkin carving vlog whenever we upload that. Yeah, the <laughs> video episodes also have an extra 10, 10 or so minutes of just having a, a catch up, yeah. a casual chat. We have a little coffee, a little chat. We tell you what's going on in our lives if you're interested. Um, yeah, that's a good time. You also get 10% off of our merchandise, which you can view on mitsmagicandmurder.com. Uh, go have a look at the merch. We released some stuff for Halloween, so even though Halloween is today, you can keep it spooky all year round. What else is there? Referrals and submissions on our website. Tell us what you want to hear, tell us your own stories. It'll be a good time. And if you have any haunted happenings, terrifying tales, or spooky stories, you can email them on mitsmagicandmurder at gmail.com. On our website as well, we also have some resources for victim support um, if you want to go check that out. And those websites you can also donate if you want to do that. So this week I'm talking about Ted Bundy, like I said. I'm sure you're familiar with him. He is quite infamous. So let's talk about the timeline of his crimes. I always find him particularly interesting um, because unlike, I think, Richard Ramirez, He's the kind of person you think about when psychology talks about, like, psychopaths being charming, you know? he He's a, a person who's asshole. charming and clever rather than just, like, sneaking into your house at night. I mean, he does do that as well, but it's not, it's not all that, which is quite interesting to learn about. So my sources are Wikipedia, Insider, 
AP News, Britannica, Biography, Oxygen, and Rolling Stone. So we'll start at his childhood so we can learn a little bit how he became this person. Ted was born in November of 1946. His mother, Eleanor, gave birth to him in a home for unwed mothers, and his father is unknown. He lived with his grandparents in Philadelphia until he was three years old, and they raised him as their son, because at the time there was a lot of stigma about being a single mother and um, having a baby out of wedlock, just in general. So because of this, he grew up believing that they were his biological parents and that his mother was his sister. Right. Which was very confusing for him later in life. He found out and he had a lot of resentment against his mother. I think people believe that he found out when he was like 20 or something, when he was like much older, because nobody bothered to tell him he found out by himself. Right. So he hated his mum for this, and he also was mad because she never told him who his dad was. And that really bothered him for whatever reason. When he was later recorded in interviews after being caught for his crimes, he said that he was respectful of his grandfather and that he was, you know, a great person and he was he's talked warmly of him. But his other family members said that the grandfather was a bully, a bigot, and hurt animals. Right. Which I think says a lot about what he respects in a person. Yeah. He started exhibiting strange behaviour from the age of three when his aunt woke up surrounded by kitchen knives and Ted was just standing next to her and smiling, which is not what you want from a toddler. His mother married a man named Johnny Bundy and they moved the family to Washington. Johnny adopted Ted and the couple had four more children together and over the years Johnny tried to make Ted feel as included as possible, you know, and be a father figure, but Ted remained distant regardless and he told his girlfriend that Johnny wasn't very bright, wasn't his real dad, and didn't make much money. Nice. While in Washington, Ted recalled searching for pornographic magazines and crime novels in trash barrels, as well as walking around the neighbourhood drinking and looking in people's windows. That's not overly weird. No, he said that he liked to read um, detective novels, and then he took it back and was like, I didn't really. Anyone who reads detective novels is stupid, basically. Okay. He, he did a lot of things like that where he was like, I did this, and then in a different interview he's like, no. I never said that. No, and they're like, so we lame. have it recorded. He's like, he thinks about it. And he's like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. He's like, oh, that's that, that gives me the ick. Yeah, like, I'll have to think of something else. He didn't have many friends as he chose to be alone. And he described that he didn't know how to interact normally and he had no sense of how to develop a relationship and that he was an outcast. But everyone at his school denied this and said that Ted Bundy was well-liked. He had many friends and people liked him. He was a completely normal student. Which makes it seem like he was just saying that to appear interesting or just, I don't know, it was a very odd thing for him to say. It's like he wants to be a bit of a, I'm a bit of a weirdo, you know what I mean? But everyone just, just like, that's just Ted, we like him. Yeah, kind of almost like he just wants like the pity, like the sympathy vote. Yeah. There's no clear answer on when Ted began his awful crimes because he would often hint at killing various people throughout the years, but without giving any proper evidence. Mm. Many people, including some detectives who worked with him, think he started killing as a teenager, and there's some evidence that he may have abducted and killed eight-year-old Anne-Marie Burr when he was 14 years old. So Anne-Marie disappeared from her bedroom in 1961, and she was unfortunately never found. But a size six shoe imprint was found outside the living room window, which had been left like slightly ajar overnight. Mm -hmm. He's thought to be a suspect because he lived near the home and he was delivering newspapers there and his uncle also lived nearby. Ted repeatedly denied this, 
saying that he didn't have the skills at the time and he wouldn't have done anything to the little girl. But he later confessed that there were some murders that were too close to home, too close to family, or the victims were very young that he didn't want to talk about. And Anne's disappearance matches all of those categories. So. Don't be an asshole. Just admit to it. Exactly. If you're already going to... He admitted to 36 murders. Just admit to them all. Just admit to them all. Are you going to be sentenced to death? I think part of the problem was that he said he couldn't remember a lot of them, though, but who knows? That's even worse. Yeah, that's... the point. If you're losing count, just... Just pack it in. It's ridiculous. I mean, pack it in anyway. He eventually decided to study psychology and became very good at it. He worked alongside his studies at a suicide hotline. And he rekindled with his first girlfriend... Who was impressed with him. So, Sorry, do you think he was any good at the suicide hotline or do you think he was just like, do it? Well, he must have been good because he was working there for a while. It depends. So he attended several universities before he, he started studying psychology and he dropped out of them. He took a minimum wage job and he started dating this girl and she broke it off. And they thought that might be like a breaking point for him because he couldn't handle the rejection. So when he was studying psychology and he was doing this suicide hotline thing... When he got back with her, she was like, oh my God, you're like polished now and you know, you've know you got it together. And then he just ghosted her. And so she kept calling him and eventually he picked up and he was like, I didn't write this down, so I'm sorry if it's not completely correct. He was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then never spoke to her again. And he was like, I just wanted to prove that I could have her, but I didn't actually want to get back with her. He just wanted to be like, look at me now. I'm all, I got it together. I mean, we've all wanted to do that, but we just don't. Well, it's not a normal thing to do, is it? No. Just grow up. Like, you've been dumped. Boo-hoo. Move on. As I said, we don't know when he began attacking people because he's told different stories to different people. But we do know that his first confirmed victim was Karen Sparks. In January of 1974, Ted entered her basement apartment and both sexually assaulted and bludgeoned her with a metal rod. Karen was a dancer and at the University of Washington at the time, and she lived with three men... So she thought she was very safe. Yeah. So one of the men talked in his sleep, which spooked Ted. And he so he quickly just fled the scene. And Karen was left with lifelong injuries. And she was there for several hours before they woke up and found her there. Jesus. But she was able to survive, which was amazing. She has no memory of the event. And she went on to become an accountant with a family of her own. Good for Which her. I thought would make you feel a bit better about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, not everybody made it out alive. So just one month later, Linda Ann Healy was taken from her basement room. She was, an, she was an undergraduate at the university who also broadcast morning weather reports for skiers, which is wholesome. Very specific. Ted broke into her room, beat her, and took her away. In the early months of 1974, female students were disappearing at an astonishing rate. It was about one a month. Oh my god. Donna Gail Manson was a 19-year-old student who'd left her dorm to attend a jazz concert. It was March. She studied at the Evergreen State College and the concert was on campus, but she never made it to the event. Almost exactly a month later, Suzanne Elaine Rancourt disappeared. She was on her way home after a meeting at the university and she studied at Central Washington State University, but she was originally from Alaska. On the night she disappeared, people came forward to say that they saw a a man asking people for help. He had brown hair and an arm sling, and he was trying to get books into his tan-coloured Volkswagen Beetle. The next month, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dorm. 
She was studying at Oregon State University, and she was leaving to meet for coffee with some friends, but she also never arrived. Almost exactly one month later, Brenda Carol Ball disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern near Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Brenda was 22 and looking for a ride. She was last seen talking to a brown-haired man with his arm in a sling. So the police were getting concerned. As I said, it was like one a month. It was all of a sudden, and then it was just not ending. But they didn't have any physical evidence to do anything to anybody. They didn't know what connected the victims, other than that they looked quite similar and that they were at university. They didn't have anything to go on. Yeah, they had like a brown head man in a sling, but like... That might not even be connected sling. at this point, yeah. you know, because it was only maybe one person who'd been confirmed to see that, so... Also, like, how many brown-haired white men are there in the world? Exactly. Only ten days after Brenda went missing, Georgianne Hawkins vanished while walking between her boyfriend's dorm and her sorority house. When she vanished, she was walking down a brightly lit alley. The next morning, detectives combed the entire alleyway on hands and knees in great detail, and they found no clues at all. Ted later said that he lured her into his car before knocking her out and driving away. He revisited her body on three separate occasions to engage in necrophilia. The next morning, he took Georgian. He returned to the alley early in the morning, While the crime scene was happening, and without being noticed, he grabbed her earrings and one of her shoes that he'd left behind, and he took them away. And they didn't even notice him. After this crime became public knowledge, witnesses came forward to tell police that they had seen a brown-haired man in a leg cast with crutches and a briefcase. One of the witnesses said that he'd asked her to carry his briefcase to his town Volkswagen Beetle, but she denied helping him. Where is he getting a leg cast from? Unrelated. I was going to say Amazon. Like, this isn't the 80s. The 70s. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. Maybe he made it? I know it's a completely irrelevant detail, but it's just, I don't even understand that. I mean, it might not be like a proper one. You know what I mean? Like, um, I guess you don't question if someone's wearing a fake leg cast. You know, if you've got a sprain rather than a break, you get like um like the same material that you use for a sling, like a crepe bandage. Yeah. It might have just been that. Around this time, Ted was working as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. Which is again absolutely wild. Even more unbelievable is that he later worked at the Department of Emergency Services, which was a government agency involved in searching for the women that he'd taken. I hate, so, I hate people that get involved in the searches. I mean, I hate killers, obviously, but when they get in- involved in the searches, it's like that um, janitor that we had in the UK that killed that girl and then went on the walks through the woods on the yeah. search for her. Like, fuck off. Yeah, so this whole time, he was working at crime prevention agencies, he was working at trying to find these people, suicide hotlines, he seemed like a really good person that was trying to prevent all of this. Also, he just looks like the average bloke. Yeah. So nobody was questioning him. At this department, he met a woman called Carol Ann Boone, who was a divorced mother of two who became his girlfriend. He had several girlfriends, sort of on and off, sometimes at the same time. The timeline is a bit confusing and it's not super relevant, So, but just for reference. Also around this time, police start to put together the pieces of the puzzle. 
figuring out that many of the disappearances were connected to an injured man who drove a tan beetle. They usually took place at night and near ongoing construction work, amongst some more physical similarities. So they were realising that he was pulling the same sort of gig every single time. Law enforcement weren't able to give much information to the public at fear of compromising the investigation, but the media were publishing enough information throughout the course, which was scaring the public a lot, but it didn't mean that people were hitchhiking less, women weren't really taking rides from random people, which I guess was good, but it didn't really stop him, obviously. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the best thing is getting a killer off the streets rather than having women have a curfew. Oh, yeah, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) Yeah, but if you can't do the first one, at least people are staying safer. Yeah, exactly. On July 14th, in broad daylight on a crowded beach, he's getting a bit cocky here, five female witnesses described an attractive man wearing a white tennis outfit and his arm in a sling introduced himself as Ted to them. He's not even trying to hide it. And asking their help to get a sailboat out of his tan beetle. Four of them refused to help him and one of them accepted, but when she got to the car, she saw there was no boat and she ran away. Because obviously people know at this point. Yeah. But they couldn't say, he's wearing a sling, you know what I mean? Yeah. More witnesses saw the same man approach Janice and Ott, who agreed to help him with his sailboat, and she never returned. She was a 23-year-old probation caseworker. Several hours later on the same day, on the same place, Denise Marie Nasland went to the restroom and never returned. She was 19 years old and studying to become a programmer, and she was having a picnic before she vanished. So at this point, he was obviously getting getting very comfortable with taking people, taking two in broad daylight, introducing himself to all these people. But this was a bit of a blessing for police because they finally had a description that wasn't just brown hair and sling. Mm. So they could create a sketch for the first time and put it in the newspapers and actually give a description of the car as well, which was obviously very important. One of his older co-workers recognised the description in the car and they reported it. And same with one of his um, ex-girlfriends or, I guess, girlfriends at the time. As I said, it's quite confusing. But they were receiving hundreds of tips and they were like, this man is clean cut, he has no criminal record. It's probably not him. No, just because he has no criminal record, it just means that he hasn't been caught. Exactly. In fall of 1974, Ted moved to Salt Lake City to attend law school, but he found it extremely difficult to understand the classes, which really disappointed him. Aww. Well, <laughs> Petal. Yeah. While he was busy trying to understand schoolwork, it didn't stop him from committing more horrible crimes. As early as September 2nd, he attacked an unidentified hitchhiker, and exactly one month later, he kidnapped and murdered Nancy Wilcox. She was 16 years old and a cheerleader. Two weeks later, Melissa Ann Smith disappeared after leaving a pizza parlour. She was 17 years old and the daughter of a police chief. Wow. And her body was found nine days later. On October 31st, Laura Ann Amy vanished after leaving a cafe at midnight. She was also 17 and her body was also found a month later. Disturbingly, Ted described his experience with the last two women's bodies as ritualistic because he shampooed their hair and put makeup on them, which he didn't do with anybody else, um, so I'm not really sure what that was about. In November, he decided to use a new tactic and he approached Carol Deronch. She was 18 years old and a telephone operator. Ted introduced himself as a police officer and said someone attempted to break into her car so she she should come with him to the station. So she agreed, got in his car, 
but she soon realized that they were driving away from the police station and she was like, you're taking me away from the police station. He tried to handcuff her, but she managed to escape the car. Good for you. Another key witness. Unfortunately, though, on the same day, Deborah Jean Kent disappeared. She was a 17-year-old student leaving a theatre production to pick up her brother. Witnesses say that night a stranger had asked them to come and identify a car, and it was likely the same man that took Deborah. As more reports were coming in, the police had put Ted Bundy higher upon their suspect list, so they weren't just dismissing it anymore. Good. However, witnesses from the beach I mentioned earlier had failed to identify him from a series of photos, and they didn't have any forensic evidence, so they couldn't make an arrest. Well, that's the thing, like, he does just look like an average bloke. He just just looks like a normal white man. And at this point, it's been a few months, so it's easy to just forget, I guess. Right, if you've had a haircut, you look totally different. Yeah. Well, I think his hair was longer at this point, so... Exactly. you, You might not even remember... The following year, Ted moved to Colorado. At the same time, a 23-year-old nurse named Karen Eileen Campbell went missing. She'd been walking down a well-lit hallway when she was taken. On March 15th, 26-year-old Julie Cunningham disappeared. She'd been walking from her apartment to have dinner with her friend. Ted Bundy approached her on crutches and asked for her help to carry some ski boots to his car. His next victim was Denise Lynn Oliverson. She was 25 and riding a bicycle near her home. The next month, he also lured and killed Lynette Dawn Culver, and she was only 12 years old. At this time, some of Ted's co-workers from Washington, including a girl he'd been seeing on and off, were sort of rekindling, I guess. And the couple discussed getting married in the next year. But what he didn't know was that she'd reported him to the police multiple times. Good for you. Later in the year, Susan Curtis vanished from her university campus. She was the last recorded confession from Bundy when he was in prison. So while he was in prison, they like talked to him many, many times using a tape recorder to try and get him to confess all of his crimes. And he, he only confessed up to Susan before he was executed. Also in 1975, he decided to be baptised and enter the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. But he ignored all of the restrictions of the religion and never went to church. So I don't really know why he did this. I kind of figured maybe it was to seem more like your good Christian guy or whatever. That's what I'm thinking, More yeah. like polished, being like, I work at crime prevention centres and I'm a law student and I'm part of this church. Like, It's like when you sign up to the gym and you never go, but you're like, I, I have a gym I, membership. I'm the average guy. I go to the gym. Yeah. You know? That's the only thing I could think of because yeah. he obviously didn't care for the religion. Back in Washington State, investigators had noticed that girls vanishing so quickly had just kind of stopped because he wasn't there anymore. So they were trying to piece that together, but they also used a new machine where they were able to narrow down Volkswagen owners named Ted. And again, they saw Ted Bundy's name. So they moved him even even higher up on the pile. He was definitely like a, a key suspect now. On the 16th of August, 1975, Ted was arrested. When they searched his car, they discovered a ski mask, a second mask made from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, and an ice pick. He tried to explain these away, but of it course. was no use. His car was dismantled, and searched for her, and they searched for her samples, which matched three of the victims. Mm. And they were like, "There's no way, that's that's a coincidence." Yeah. Because what are the chances all of those three people were in this car and now they disappeared? They also put him in a lineup for Carol DeRange, the lady who managed to escape his car, who immediately identified him. Good. Witnesses who also recognised him as the man who was waiting around their university. However, he was freed 
on a $15,000 bail that was paid for by his parents. But he still had to go to trial. When he did get taken to court, he was found guilty for the crimes that could be proven, and he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison. 1? To 15. 1? In 1977, Bundy broke out of prison, broke into a cabin, stole food, clothes and weapons, he travelled through forests, stealing as he went, and then he stole a car. He was caught, though, because he was swerving between lanes, and at this point he'd been free for six days. And he was taken back to jail. That's too long for a serial killer to be uh, free. But they took him back to jail, and then he broke out of the jail. Oh my god! Stole another car, caught a bus, and ended up in Florida. Oh, you'd think he would be on, like, con ops, right? Like, someone should be watching this man. There was a skeleton crew in the jail. Why? And he had, like, cut a hole in the ceiling, and he was doing, like, test runs. Um, He put books in his bed so they couldn't see that he was missing, and he went to Florida. That old trope. By the time they'd woken up to, to find that he wasn't there, he was already across the country, so... He'd been living in an apartment near the Florida State University under a fake name, Chris Hagen. He tried to get a job, but he didn't have any ID under his fake name, so he resorted to stealing. It was here he broke into a sorority house while its members were asleep and attacked several women. Margaret Bowman was 21, Lisa Levy was 20 and was left with a large bite mark on her skin. He also attacked Kathy Kleiner, who received bad injuries, as well as Karen Chandler, who also received injuries. But Kathy and Karen survived because um, headlights from a car illuminated the inside of the room and it spooked him, so he left. My goodness. And another member was coming back to the sorority house as Ted was leaving, so they saw him. As soon as he left the house, he went straight to a basement apartment and attacked Cheryl Thomas. She also survived, but was left with bad injuries. They found a pantyhose mask on the bed which led them to suspect Ted again. They are so creepy looking. I hate those. They are very creepy. I mean, obviously any kind of mask is creepy because there's probably a serial killer behind it. Um, I'm not good on Halloween. But also, the pantyhose mask, it's just kind of, it's proper, like... Makeshift. Makeshift, yeah. It's like in the spur of the moment, like, I'm going to do some horrible, horrible things. And it makes your face, like, smushed up. Yeah, and, it's horrible. Oh, On February 9th, 1978, Ted murdered Kimberly Leach. She was 12 years old. A few days later, Ted stole a car and fled the area because he suspected that they were getting closer to finding him and also he was due rent, like he needed to pay rent and he didn't have any money, so he was just going to leave. But he was pulled over by an officer because the car was stolen. And as they checked the car, they found 21 stolen credit cards, IDs belonging to female students and some sunglasses that were not his. And when they arrested him, they had no idea they were arresting one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives. Oh my god. In 1979, he went to trial for the murders of the sorority house. But as he was really cocky and thought that he was super smart, he was his own attorney. He even cross-examined witnesses during the trial. I remember that being a thing. They offered him a plea deal for 75 years, but he denied it because it would prove that he was guilty. And witnesses who saw him leaving the house recognised him as the same man. So they obviously testified. And the, when he left a bite mark on one of the victims, they were able to match the dental imprints to Ted. So it was pretty obviously that he'd, he'd already done it. I don't think that serial killers should be able to represent themselves because 
if you're testifying against like sexual abuse or I presume like murder or domestic abuse that kind of thing you have the option to like be interviewed separately you know what I mean to to be able to give your statement and you know speak to the jury separately without the the person there the offender there yeah so but you wouldn't be able to do that would you if he's able to cross-examine these poor witnesses are gonna have to look into the eyes of the man that like killed their best mate yeah how horrible I know he was also on another trial later in the year for the murder of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, which he was also found guilty of. While at prison, he married Carol Ann Boone, who we talked about later, and she moved closer to Florida to be with him, and he also fathered her child while at prison. But they did divorce. She's the one that was in the movie with Zac Efron, wasn't she? I think so. Yeah. While in prison, Ted confessed to killing 36 women, but said there was probably more because he didn't remember all of his murders and he gave vague descriptions of some people but they couldn't ever name them um so it may have been closer to a hundred they think oh my goodness he was on death row for nine years during which he had many many interviews where they asked him about his crimes his victims and tried to just understand him he initially refused to confess and discuss any of his crimes but the interviewer had like a trick where they would flatter him and be like you're a law and psychology student, like, you could probably give an insight that we couldn't, you know, because mm. you, you're oh, Ted, so smart. you're so clever. And, like, what kind of person would do this? So then he talked in third person, you know, trying to give by his expertise, but he was essentially just giving away everything that he'd done in great detail, which was a very, like, interesting tactic, I think. Yeah. He said that he was driven to commit the horrible crimes due to pornography, as once he became addicted to it, he became harder to find more graphic material, which led him to violence. But many researchers say that that was likely not true. Yeah. The problem wasn't pornography, it was Ted. He was just thinking of something to try and seem a bit more interesting yeah. again. A lot of people have witnessed pornography in their lifetimes, and there are not statistically as many serial killers. I think it's definitely an interesting argument, but for Ted Bundy, I highly doubt it was just that, you know? Yeah. The Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix is a great documentary if you want to hear him in first person or like talking in third person or whatever. Yeah. Because he, I've watched a few episodes of them and he's just, he acts extremely normally. Like he's just not done anything. You know, he's just smart. He's just charming. Like that's what he comes across as. I'm not saying he is, but it's clear that he thought of himself very highly. Yeah. He's just like leaning back in the chair being like, hey, this is Ted Bundy, like into the little microphone. And it's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. But he was executed on January 24th, 1989, by the electric chair that they called Sparky. Oh. Crowds cheered afterwards, and his last words were, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. And he did not request a last meal. What a creep. And that is Ted Bundy. Big creep, yeah. Ew. You got any insight on that? Asshole. <laughs> That's that's my insight on Ted Bundy. That's Kate's psychology viewpoint on yeah, Ted Bundy. You're welcome. Here I am. I cannot disagree. I have a bachelor's and what I have to tell you is he's an asshole. He's just so He really believed that he was like the smartest person. Yeah. A lot of them do though, like with the sort of psychopathic personalities. Yeah. They're just like, well, yeah, I'm the dog's bollocks. Like, he was obviously a narcissist as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was like, yeah, no one, no one's on my level. Man flunked law school 
and he was like i'll represent myself because i'm so fucking clever and everyone else is so dumb yeah well one of the researchers said that when they were interviewing him they were like i didn't believe in a true psychopath until i spoke to ted bundy and then it was quite obvious yeah you know it's a shame because i personally am all for like reformation rehabilitation um rather than like punishment you know and i know that like a lot of people are against that and that's fine whatever but there is no way you'd be able to rehabilitate someone like that because they would just show you what you wanted to see yeah and then they'd leave and they'd do it all again yep and it's crap well i feel like that was a real big downer but i'm glad that we both got to tell about a huge serial killer because i normally avoid them because i don't want to be a downer yeah i tend to avoid them as well but sometimes it's just interesting to cover something like this and we hope you learned something and there is nothing scarier than people that is true that's my my message for you on this halloween you got one out uh have a great halloween oh i have another one don't listen before bed listen before bed <laughs>